Hello, and welcome to the Classicist Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, here, as always, with Victor Davis Hansen, the Morton and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And Victor, cleaving today to the title of our show, uh, we head back to ancient Rome. You wrote a piece recently comparing Donald Trump to the Roman Emperor Claudius. So we can get to the comparisons in a moment, but for the uninitiated, why don't we just start by having you give us a beginner's guide to Claudius and his historical significance? Well, Claudius was the the emperor that succeeded Caligula, the monster Caligula, and then he was the (laughs) precursor to Nero. So he was sandwiched between Two of the Julio, they, we call them the Julio Claudians, and that means the uh, six Caesars from Augustus and Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, and then Nero, and we conclude Julius too. And they are, and Claudius, they have to be related on either the side of Livia, uh, Augustus's wife, or Augustus himself, and. He was a uh, accidental emperor. He didn't come into power until he was 50 years old on the assassination of the much despised Caligula. And he, there were some things wrong with him from what our historical sources say that he might have had Tourette syndrome or stutter. He was not very handsome. He was, and that saved his life because, as you know, Caligula eliminated all, all of his uh, his rivals. And then when Caligula was murdered. They found him hiding behind a curtain and the Praetorian guard announced him emperor. And the next thing we knew, somebody who should never have been emperor, he was too old, we thought too ugly. He was a dupe for younger women, married four times. And in the year 41 to 54, he was emperor and he lasted, you know, for 13 years until he was 63. And he was a Go ahead. So you, I'm sorry. You, so you can sort of you can feel the comparisons already percolating in what you've said thus far. But tease out for us yeah. where you see the analogy here between Claudius and Donald Trump. Well, he had no. Uh, he was kept out of the curse, what we call the curses honorum, uh, because his mother and his uncle Tiber his uh, um, his entire Julio uh, Julio Claudian line didn't want him anywhere near the power. So. He didn't. He wasn't a legate. He wasn't a military commander. He was sort of a bookish, kind of a weird guy. He liked to build things. And when he became emperor, his mother called him a monster. And when he became emperor, lo and behold, he stopped the extravagance of Caligula. He stopped the persecutions. He worked with the Senate. And yet he was very tough. He put down plots against him. And there were many from especially from his last wife, Agrippina, the mother of Nero. But more importantly, he started building things. He rebuilt the harbor in Ostia. He rebuilt uh, some of the border fortifications in the east. He built all these magnificent aqueducts, many of them still there in Rome. And he, he annexed Britain, and he was the first emperor to be able to do that. So he had a lot of accomplishments, but even the the later historical tradition under Tacitus or Suetonius uh, did not like him, and we have pretty negative and then uh, appraisal of him. And then Seneca wrote this uh, pumpification, a satire, because he was an obsequious toady with Nero, and he wanted to please Nero by trashing the prior emperor. 
his uncle Claudius. And uh, we, so we have a bad historical tradition. The intellectual elite of Rome hated him. So on this idea, this common thread between the two of the notion of them sort of being gauche and on class terms sort of unfit for office, I'll read here sort of a, a longish quote from the piece that you wrote on this, this, this part about Trump. The thrice married Trump was supposedly too old, too crude, too coarse, and too reckless in his past private life. His critics now allege that the blunt-talking Trump suffers from some sort of psychological or physical ailment given that his accent, diction, grammar, and general manner of speaking, as well as his comportment, just don't seem presidential, close quote. Okay, so clearly you think that line of argument is overwrought. Stipulating that, is there still some underlying value to the concept of expecting, quote-unquote, presidential behavior? Or, Or is your position that really all of these stylistic considerations are really superfluous when it comes to judging a leader's behavior? Yeah, I think that's what the what I wrote about Claudius because by every Roman standard of physical beauty or uh, rhetorical mastery or uh, having the right contacts, he was the black sheep of the entire family. And yet, when he came into power, he 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 built things. He put people to work. He reformed the fiscal status. He cleaned up the mess of. Caligula, and he created such a surplus that Nero, who followed him, could do what Caligula did because Claudius had been the fireman in between the two. And I think it's a reminder that so-called brilliant historians and intellectuals like Seneca, Suetonius, Tacitus, who had access to sources and who wrote in the case of Tacitus and Suetonius later, despised him for the wrong reasons. And it took modern scholars who looked at inscriptions, the historical record, archaeology, epigraphy, and they said, you know what, he got a bomb rap, and now he's considered one of the strongest of the, of the 12 Julio-Claudians and the, the heirs of Vespasian, so he's considered a good emperor now. And what, I'm, what I was trying to suggest is just forget Trump the messenger and look at Trump the message, and look at Keystone or look at Dakota or Neil Gorsuch, or look what he's trying to do with deregulation or closing the border or bringing jobs back or lowering the price of electricity through natural gas promotion and get aluminum smelters or fertilizer plants back here and just forget about awesome and tremendous. And maybe he has a vocabulary of 1500 words. Who cares? I don't care. He says tremendous all day long. It doesn't bother me as long as the economy is going to hit 3% and he solves the illegal immigration problem and he restores deterrence abroad. And uh, that was my point. I, I don't think, we're doing that right now. We're, we're worried about whether he had two ice cream scoops or whether Baron Trump is autistic or whether Melania was a, a legal alien at one time. And it's just, it's sort of palace intrigue, but it's not the record. There's it's not a, what counts. The, there's a provocative little riff in this piece where you say, I'm quoting you here, critics miss the fact that Trump is not a catalyst, but a reflection of contemporary culture. Is that is that a good thing or a bad thing? In other, in other words, is that sort of debasing our politi- political standards, as some people argue, or is it really just adopting a kind of, I guess you'd call it civic honesty and getting rid of this sort of odd manufactured facade that we've gotten so used to politicians adopting? Yeah, I think it's – politicians are crude, but they have a veneer of civility. He, Trump doesn't have a veneer. 
So Obama brings Glozell and does an interview with a woman who's famous for taking a bath with cereal and milk and putting funny color in her hair with no talent whatsoever. And yet it's Obama. He went to Harvard. He's smooth. He's charismatic. We don't say anything. Brings a rapper into the White House whose album cover Kendrick Lamar has a dead judge with his eyes X'd out while rappers are toasting his demise. I mean, that's macabre. And then we get mad that Trump has Ted Nugent. Well, Trump has Ted Nugent because there is no more bar of personal presidential behavior. It's gone. And part of it was Barack Obama, the sophisticated man whose pants crease um, made, in the eyes of David Brooks made him you know, a great president or he was a living god or he could cool the planet. What all of the superlatives that were given to us in 2009 bankrupt that vocabulary of assessment. And now all of the vituperation in 2017 means nothing because the journalist has no reputation anymore. So if Reed Zakaria or, or David Brooks or any of these people say anything, uh, nobody they, they, they engage in hero, hero worship and now they're engaged in hero demonization. So it's sort of like people who said that Caligula was the answer to all their prayers. And they did say that. And then they said Claudius is a monster. We didn't, nobody believed them anymore. Because they were, they weren't empirical. So, what I guess what I'm saying is, just let's look at the economy, let's look at the foreign policy, let's look at energy, immigration, and tune out the rest, and then make an assessment on Trump. And you can't do that, obviously, in four months. Right, and and to that very point, your argument here, as regards Claudius, is that especially at the time, everybody was so caught up in the atmospherics that they sort of lost track of the, the record of accomplishment. So to that point, to the point you just made that we can't judge it in four months, what would President Trump need to do in order for us to be able to say the same thing about him? By the time all was said and done, what would the track record need to look like? Yeah, I think that's a very good question because it's it reminds me of Reagan in 82 when we had that recession and he was still with Paul Volcker trying to break, break the back of inflation and his his popularity got down to almost 40% and he suffered some, you know, setbacks in the uh, 82 midterms. And then something happened. The Reagan agenda took off. We got, believe it or not, 7% economic growth over 12 months. And he won an astounding reelection. I think it was the third largest in history. So what Trump needs to do, he needs to get 3% economic growth. We haven't seen that, um, in 10 years, if he were to do that, then the budget problems, the deficit problems, the entitlement problems are they're fixable. And he can and we don't know if he's going to be able to do that without the Senate and the House passing his tax reform. But he is doing things, given the Obama precedent of executive orders of a magnitude we hadn't seen until Obama, that he's deregulating. He's promoting energy. He's promoting natural gas development. He's cutting trade deals. He's renegotiating. He's jawboying companies. And if he should get 3% economic growth, then I think we're going to have a very radical assessment. And if he, if illegal immigration, it's down 70%, if it would be down to 90%, and if he's able to create uh, a sense of deterrence so we don't have this Iran deal or we don't have uh, red lines, fake lines, deadlines, all of that Obama sort of namby-pamby stuff if he's able to do that without getting us in a war and without getting a you know a recession he's then i think these purple state congressmen who say kind of sort of i'm a republican i kind of sort of support trump they'll be 
calling up the White House asking for more signed pictures. And Trump's my man, and I'm going to run on his coattail. Now, if he doesn't, then he's going to be orphaned because he's very vulnerable. We've never seen a Republican president in our lifetime that is so despised by the intellectual elite. And we say, well, they don't have any clout because what National Review or Weekly Standard or some people at the Wall Street Journal said should happen did not happen. But that doesn't mean that they don't have influence still. And they're constantly attacking Trump still from the right as the left has gone completely crazy. And the only thing that's going to silence those two sides is real economic achievement and foreign policy stability. Let me pick up here on another observation in your column. You you write here mentioning some of Trump's cabinet picks like Rex Tillerson, Jim Mattis, H.R. McMaster, John Kelly. Uh, quoting you again, never have so many cabinet officers been given such responsibility and autonomy. That, in some quarters, Victor, has been a cause of concern. There were these reports that came out yesterday that the president, for instance, has given Secretary Mattis the authority to determine the troop levels in Afghanistan. And there are a lot of critics who say that the president is, in this case, delegating too much, that you want the commander in chief to play a much more decisive role so that his administration is operating in a more coherent way. How do you react to that line of criticism? I don't think any, I think it's a historical. I mean, do people really think that FDR told George Marshall, we want 160,000 people at sea and we want 155,000 on the ground by the end of D-Day? He didn't at all. In fact, he made some major parameters. He said, I want a cross-channel invasion in 1942 and three, and they said, you can't do that. And then he said, I want it in 44 and the early, and they said, you can't do that. And then he said, I need it by June and that's it. We're going to go. And they said, okay. And then he said, work out the plan. You tell me what, just don't fail. And that's pretty much what Trump is doing. He said, I'm not a neocon. I'm not a nation builder. I don't want to go make, you know, Iraq or Afghanistan in, an, in the mirroring Im- image of the West. I just want it stable. I want to kill ISIS. Go figure out the plan within those parameters and then go do it. And if you don't do it, I'll get another guy to do it. Sort of like Lincoln said, I do not want the Confederate Army across the Potomac. And I do not want them coming into southern Ohio uh, as they came up earlier to Shiloh. And I want somebody to take Richmond. And then it took him, I guess, 11 generals until they got Sherman and Grant that could do that. But they, Lincoln never called Sherman and said, you're not to go down from Atlanta to Savannah on the march to the sea. He said, I don't know what hole Sherman went into, but he's missing. And when he comes up again, well, Uncle Billy will have done something good. I have my confidence in him. And then Grant said, I can't tell him what to do, but he's he's always been right so far. And Sherman took off. And then he went into the Carolinas. And Lincoln just said, I've got these two bookends, Grant and Sherman. They know what I want, and they're going to go do it. But Lincoln had no more idea of the march to the sea. He had no more idea of the siege of Richmond, what was actually going on. And he was a very involved commander. So I think we're done with the with the micromanaging of Obama where he turned warfare into lawfare and said, you can only have this many drone explosions at this time of the elect- re-election cycle, or you can have only this number of troops uh, as I go up to 2011 and head into 2012. Or we have to get every single troop out of Iraq by December 31st, 2011, so I can honor my campaign promise and be elected again. That's what we've been at. So this is 
I think people take a deep breath. It's a relief because Trump has said, I'm not George Bush. I'm not Barack Obama. Here's what I want. You guys do the details. And if you don't do it, you're fired. So there is accountability, but there's not micromanagement. The last thing I'll ask you to sort of tie this all together, if Claudius is this historical touchstone for Trump, what can the president learn from his example? Well, I think that one thing Claudius did is that he did he had a lot of coups that were staged against him, obviously, and he he put them down. He was pretty tough. And one of the attractions of Trump is that he fights back. Uh, unlike Romney and McCain in there. So he needs to keep fighting back. But Claudius was very circumspect and he didn't uh, react. He didn't uh, allow people to know that they had gotten to him or that he knew what they were doing. So obviously this is sort of banal at this point, but Trump needs to reserve his energy, uh, prune back his tweets, stay on message, and he's really got to say to the Republicans, you're either going to, we're either going to hang separately or we're going to hang together. So we've got to get the ACA Act. We've got to get health care reform. We've got to get the tax reform. It doesn't have to be perfect, but we have to create a sense of momentum. I can do the executive orders. That will help. We can all work with the Democrats on infrastructure. But we've got to get these two things going, and that's going to help you and me. And I'm not going to worry whether Arnold failed on The Apprentice. I'm not going to worry uh, uh, and gloat over somebody. I'll just st- tweeting is good because it bypasses this corrupt Beltway elite. But he's got to show a lot more discipline, I think. And I think Claudius was able to to be emperor for 13 years when about almost everybody wanted to get rid of him. All right. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Classicist Podcast. We'll be back soon with another episode. Until then, you can stop by Defining Ideas at hoover.org to read more of Victor's commentary. For Victor Davis Hanson, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.